Zendo is full, and it looks like it's going to be a warm spring morning. Uh, sun is out here in Berkeley. We are having a one-day sitting. That is the opening of our spring 2023 practice period, which I think is our 32nd. Does anyone know for sure? 33rd. 33rd, okay. Uh, 33rd. That's amazing. It's a long, many practice periods. Uh-huh. And some of us have been here from pretty much the beginning of those. So we have the practice period beginning today with one day sitting. Uh, l- later in the afternoon, we're going to have uh, the practice period opening ceremony and the installation of our 33rd Shuso or 34th Shuso. Another, no, 33rd. Anyway, Sue Osher uh, is going to be our Shuso for the practice period. And I know you will uh, you'll support and be supported by her in the course of the next six weeks. We're very happy to have you taken the seat. Um, we're also going to be doing something we haven't done for four years this afternoon. Uh, in a little while, we're going to have Oriyoki lunch. Uh, and we're going to do it outside uh, with some social distancing and with a lot of care being taken by the by the servers, and this is a great experiment, uh, and it feels like the time has come for it. And also, I'm aware the uh, the infection is still all around us. You know, I heard this morning that uh, Roshi Joan Halifax, who had just been she'd been in um, Japan for a month and did great there and she came back to Upaya and uh, in a couple of days she got infected Uh, and I you know I hear about people all the time it's somewhat anecdotal but it's it's not just disappearing uh, willingly it's the disease is kind of digging in its heels so we're going to try this and see how it works today, and I'm excited to do that. Just more housekeeping this afternoon. Uh, I'll be offering Dokusan, and uh, that'll be in the Abbot's office, which is right on the courtyard here. And uh, Ryushin, Andrea Thatch will be offering Dokusan. Are you going to be in the hut? In the hut. And uh, our time is short, uh, so please, well, I'm going to begin during work period, uh, so you may be called out by my Jisha Karen, uh, but uh, if you're on the list, think about what you might want to ask. Think about your, uh, your question at the moment. And if it changes when you actually sit down, that's fine. Uh, or if it doesn't arise till you sit down, that's fine. But um, let's get right to a Dharma interchange, okay? So my subject for the practice period, we're going to uh, 
we're going to dig into the Zen mind, beginner's mind. And I'm going to start with that today. Well, we have a five, we have a, I think a f either five or six session classes, five, five sessions on Thursday evenings, and that's available in person and online. Uh, and I've got to still zero in on what what chapters to to tell you to study. But for today, uh, I want to ruminate on a chapter of uh, Zen Mind Against Mind that's called Impermanence. Uh, and I was thinking about it from various angles. I was thinking about it just a moment ago. Uh, I used to pride myself on and it was pride, which is not an admirable quality, but it happens in us, uh, on being able to do my bows and get up without using my hands. By, you know, I had a whole way of throwing my weight back uh, and getting some momentum so I could just stand, and it was, it was relatively easy. Uh, and that worked just fine for about 30 years. Uh, and now, not only do I need one hand to get up, I need two hands to get up. And I'm not always doing all the bows. It's kind of, I'm judging uh, the moment by moment impermanence of my knees. Uh, so, uh, you know, impermanence impinges upon us in, in every way. This week, uh, Lori and I went down to Tassajara. Uh, we went down just for a day, really. We went, drove down on Wednesday <clears throat> and drove out on on Thursday, uh, and the purpose of that trip was some point, probably this summer, uh, we're going to uh, install a memorial stone for Sojin Roshi. There's a hill in back of Tassajara where there's a, a memorial site for, which is presently, Suzuki Roshi, Katagiri Roshi, and Trudy Dixon, who was the person who edited Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Um, and Zen Center has decided there's space for three more stones up there, uh, which would be for the three abbots who were direct disciples of Suzuki Roshi. So uh, Sojin will be the first. And uh, in time, there'll be a stone for Richard Baker and for Tension Reb Anderson. But we went down to kind of go stone shopping around Tassajara, which was really fun. It was beautiful down there. But Tassajara is different. Uh, you know, for those of you who have been down there, uh, there were only 13 residents, uh, where usually in the summer there would be 50 or 60. And uh, they're not having a guest season, they're having Sangha weeks. So we have two Sangha weeks uh, coming up this year. I think they're fully subscribed, right? Ours is Susan Marvin's and mine is, I don't know, maybe Mary Ours is the September 5th. But is it subscribed? Are there spaces yet? Oh, um, no. Ours is not subscribed. Okay. Still accepting. Okay, so just to say, yours is when? June 27th until July 2nd. And that one is fully subscribed. And uh, yours, you and Jerry, is it? Yes. When is that? Uh, September 5 through 10. September 5 through 10. So, um, the students who are coming down for Sangha week 
are working very closely with the small staff there and they, you, are making this happen yourself. And uh, Tassahara is different than it was when uh, some of us did practice periods there. And so it's, everything is subject to impermanence. Uh, and cha it's challenging. It's really challenging. Uh, in my, uh, my, my recent book, uh, I wrote about something that I remembered uh, happening Sojin. So one day during Saturday lecture, Sojin paused and he looked around the zendo and he was taking in the graceful form of the place and the attentive faces that were ready to absorb his teaching. And he talked about how much he appreciated the beauty of our zendo and the steadiness of our 50s year practice. How solid it all appeared. And yet, he said, it could all disappear in a moment. And he waved his hand dismissively. And some smiled knowingly. Of course, that's the Buddha's teaching of impermanence. We all know that. But we didn't know and could never have imagined the way things are right now. It just seemed the forms of Sashin, the forms of our Oryoki, the forms of our practice seemed so set. They just unrolled day by day, week by week, year by year. And they seemed like very just immovable process, unchangeable process. And then in a moment, in March, three years ago, everything changed. And all of a sudden, we had to reconsider and rethink and make decisions about every step of our practice again. And uh, we don't know how things are going to be in six months or in a year or five or ten years. Uh, we do know that we don't know. That is for sure. And that everything is changing. So in the Buddhist teachings, uh, in the early teachings, the Buddha talks about three marks of existence. And I've talked about this often. I'm sure it's familiar to many of you. Impermanence, that things are changing. Non-self, that everything has a, is of a nature that is co-constructed of other, infinitely other elements and causes and conditions. And in the early teachings, suffering, dukkha, that there's a feeling of unsatisfactoriness. In the later Mahayana teachings, uh, often instead of the third mark being dukkha, the third mark is nirvana, which is kind of interesting to think about because what it implies to me is that suffering, suffering or the, the absence of suffering, that's contingent upon how you feel about impermanence and non-self. If you think impermanence and non-self is a bad idea, which Actually, we all do. Uh, then 
you're going to be bound to suffer. If you think, yes, this is the way it is, and you find yourself being able to accept impermanence, and by implication accept non-self, then one can abide in nirvana. And nirvana, in a certain way, just means the absence of suffering. Uh, so, to turn to Suzuki Roshi, actually the chapter is called Transiency in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And he says, we should find perfect existence through imperfect existence. The basic teaching of Buddhism is the teaching of transiency or change. That everything changes is the basic truth for each existence. No one can deny this truth. And all of the teachings of Buddhism is condensed within it. Wherever we go, this teaching is true. This teaching is also understood as the teaching of selflessness, of non-self. Because each existence is in constant change, there is no abiding self. In fact, the self-nature of each existence is nothing but change itself and the self-nature of all existence. There is no special, separate self-nature for each existence. This is also called the teaching of nirvana. When we realize the everlasting truth of everything changes and find our composure in it, we find ourselves in nirvana. So to find ourselves composure in it means to be able to stand up or to sit down right in the middle of that change. Uh, not to flail around, not to look for the, where's that exit door? Uh, but just, just to be able to rest there. Before we move on, we keep moving, but we can find our ease in each moment. Suzuki Roshi goes on, without accepting the fact that everything changes, we cannot find perfect composure. But unfortunately, although it is true, it is difficult for us to accept it. Because we cannot accept the truth of transiency, we suffer. So the cause of suffering is our non-acceptance of the truth. So that's what I was saying, that, that whether you suffer or whether you find yourself in nirvana depends upon your attitude about impermanence. Now, frankly, this is not an abstract question. You know, this is like, oh, I can't do my vows. Or, I can't run the way I used to. Or, I can't think the way I used to. Everything goes away. Everything is changing. Can, can I accept that? The teaching of cause of the cause of suffering and the teaching that everything changes are two are two sides of one coin. And then he, he says, this is an interesting and challenging sentence. 
Dogen Gen Zenji said, well, or he says, but subjectively, transiency is the cause of our suffering. Okay, so we're sort of repeating. Objectively, this teaching is simply the basic truth that everything changes. It's the teaching. And then he quotes Dogen. He says, Dogen Zenji said, teaching which does not sound as if it is forcing something on you is not true teaching. That's, you know, what I love about Suzuki Roshi is the book is so warm and inviting and you read it and you want to say, oh yes, oh yes. And then he says something like this, what the hell does that mean? That's really hard. The teaching which does not sound as if it is forcing something on you is not true teaching. The teaching itself is true and in itself does not force anything upon us. But because of our human tendency, we receive the teaching as if something was being forced on us. Get me out of here. Get me out of this failing body. You know, get me out of this world filled with, filled with disease and war and violence and racism and hatred. You know, this is being forced on me. This is not who I am. We really have to reckon with what our direct actual experience is, like it or not. Because of our human tendency, we receive the teaching as if something was being forced on us. But whether we feel good or bad about it, the truth exists. We should find perfect existence through imperfect existence. We should find perfection in imperfection. That's also really hard. What is the perfection of the terrible things that we see unfolding in our world? If there's something I can do about it, I will. If not, I have to accept it. I've been reading a, a can't, gee, I can't remember the name of this book right now, uh, reading a wonderful book by uh, a naturalist writer, Bill DeBuis, a uh, fantastic writer. Uh, and this is, this is his, his latest book. And it turns out it's really about the uh, nomad clinics that uh, Roshi Joan Halifax and others organize, have been organizing for the last 30 years or so that go to very remote Dolpo region of uh, Nepal, where it's very, it's really high altitude, uh, it's difficult to get to, and they bring a large crew of people, including uh, wonderful medical practitioners and medicines, and they set up uh, these clinics in, in places every few days for a month or more. And one of the people on the team raises this question for the writer, Debris. Um, What's the point of what we're doing? You know, really, you go to a place where there are, there may be acute injuries, a lot of chronic illness, uh, a lot of just difficult circumstances, and almost literally, 
what they can provide is a band-aid. You know, they can provide some, some, uh, some medicines for remission of pain, some medicines that will temporarily uh, provide some relief from, say, a chronic condition, but they're going to leave and those people will remain. And so what's the point? It's a really good question. It's a really hard question. I'm coming around to think that the acceptance of impermanence in the face of impermanence the best we can do is to be in relation is what's we cannot remove say the chronic medical circumstances of the people that these clinicians are visiting but what they are injecting mysteriously into the entire system is the fact that these people cared enough to make this really difficult journey to offer just to offer something to be in connection with people whom we would not otherwise see. And that may be the best we can do. Just as in the face of transiency, maybe the best we can do is gather here on a beautiful spring morning and sit together which doesn't necessarily does not necessarily help my knees you know uh, it doesn't necessarily resolve any of the crises that we may experience or people around us may be experiencing in their lives but to recognize that we can do this, that we're not alone, that we can do this together. Maybe that's nirvana. And it's very different than kind of, there's, there's, a, there's a subtext that we get about nirvana. Uh, even as Mahayana practitioners, we we have this idea, and it's in the literature too. It's like nirvana is something I can accomplish. Nirvana is my relief from suffering. And maybe nirvana is something that only we can do, that we do by placing ourselves, by committing ourselves to each other. To doing simple things like sitting and walking and eating together and working. For us, complete perfection is not different from imperfection. We should find the truth in this world through our difficulties, through our suffering. Every week at resident meeting, uh, we have the residents here meet and have a meal and, uh, and check in. Uh, 
weekly on Tuesday evenings. And for the last while, well, for a long time, what we were doing was reading, uh, we sort of pick up one of Suzuki Roshi's books and opened it at random and read a passage, which is always energizing. Uh, for the last uh, period, we've been picking up the manuscript for Sojin Roshi's book, which will come out in the in the fall. It's actually, by the way, it's it's actually in production, so it will it'll be out. So uh, uh, we read this week uh, this section. It's apropos for Sashin, although we are not that long at Sashin, so I don't think anybody's having a tremendous amount of pain yet, I hope. Maybe some of you are. So Sojin writes, One time around the fourth day of Sashin, when there was enough pain and discomfort to go around, he, Suzuki Roshi, began his talk by saying slowly, The problems you are experiencing now will go away, we were sure he was going to say. We'll continue for the rest of your life, he concluded. <laughs> Just, and so the, the next sentence is, the way he said it, everyone laughed, uh, which just happened. Uh, this seems like the last thing a student wants to hear from a teacher. You are doomed to be who you are for the rest of your life. So that's interesting. You're doomed to be who you are for the rest of your life. The problem you have is the problem you always have. And then the question is, well, how does this relate to impermanence, right? Uh, and I think I'm not going to explore that. I'm going to throw that back at you uh, in the form of a koan. Uh, but at any rate, Sojin writes, Suzuki Roshi wasn't against solving problems. He was simply trying to help us understand that if we neglect to live fully, in each moment, sacrificing this moment for a future time, we miss our life, which is only this moment with its joys and sorrows. Our present problems are our equipment or our tools for practice. To go back to Suzuki Roshi again, This teaching doesn't get any easier. Uh, he says, so enlightenment, well, this is the basic teaching of Buddhism, says Suguruji. Pleasure is not difficult, different from difficulty. Really? Good is not different from bad. Really? Bad is good. Good is bad. They are two sides of one coin. So enlightenment should be in practice. What that means to me is enlightenment is actually the activity of our engagement with whatever circumstances are coming up in the moment. That's what we mean by practice. Uh, practice can be it, it can be somewhat abstract, but if we think of it as like, how do I do this? How do I meet whatever is coming up, whether in the moment it seems good or bad? But you know, in this wonderful warm teaching. 
he gets to another really challenging point. So to find pleasure in suffering is the only way to accept the truth of transiency. Without realizing how to accept this truth, you cannot live in the world. Even though you try to escape from it, your effort will be in vain. So until we become strong enough to accept difficulty as pleasure, we have to continue this effort, this effort of practice. Actually, if you become honest enough or straightforward enough, it's not so difficult to accept this truth. You can change your way of thinking a little bit. It is difficult, but this difficulty will not always be the same. Sometimes it will be difficult and sometimes it will not be so difficult. If you are suffering, you will have some pleasure in the teaching that everything changes. That's actually, I recommend that practice to you. Uh, it's, I literally do this. You know, when, uh, when I get really upset or angry about something, I now have a, an internal feedback loop and I ask myself, this feels really bad right now and it feels really urgent. I have to say something or do something right now, you know, which may mean run out and talk to somebody who I'm having a problem with or uh, dash off an email and send it. Uh, nobody's done that, right? Um, and what I inject, and this is this is practice, is to stop and ask myself, just to own, this feels really bad right now. How is it going to feel in an hour or tonight? or the next morning? What will just kind of the, the balm of time do to this feeling of uh, fierce urgency? Now, it doesn't mean that whatever is painful or whatever is troubling goes away. But almost always what happens is it, it sits back into a different context of my body and mind. And then I can actually decide, is this something that I ought to do something about? Is it not? If I'm going to do something about it, how do I want that to turn out? Not on the basis of righteousness, but on the basis of relationship. Sometimes this will be difficult and sometimes it will be not so difficult. When you are in trouble, it's quite easy to accept this teaching. So why not accept it at other times? It's the same thing. Ah. Sometimes you may laugh at yourself, discovering how selfish you are. That's another, that's another thing I've learned. If there's, if there's something I've learned over roughly 40 years of practice, it's to be, to laugh at myself, to be amused at my foibles, you know, to be able to say, there you go again. Uh, and so, if I make a mistake, if I, if I make a mistake while I'm doing service, if I forget to make an offering, or if somebody else forgets a bell, you know, it's like, oh, where was I? 
this is this is just a human activity this is not something to beat myself up about it gets harder when actually one may have done harm that's a harder not so easy to laugh at but at the very least what we can find is that there's a commonality in our experience with other beings and we can we can lean on that sometimes you may laugh at yourself sometimes discovering how selfish you are but no matter how you feel about this teaching of transiency it's very important for you to change your way of thinking and accept the truth of transiency so i'm going to stop there and leave some time for questions or comments um, a sangha member ran into soji roshi at a fancy carpet shop here in berkeley and she lamented you know i'm gonna die so why am i buying a carpet and soji said i'm gonna die so i'm gonna buy a carpet <laughs> <laughs> i have a question which is uh, you wrote, or you composed a, a CD of music called, and you entitled it, Everything is Broken. And I wonder if you talk a little bit about how you see, perceive brokenness and impermanence or transiency. Ah, thank you. That's a really good question. Um, there's a, uh, a wonderful Japanese art. Um, what is it called? Kintsugi. Kintsugi, where you take broken cups, vessels, and you mend them with a gold solder. Uh, and when you do that, there's a new beauty that, that appears. Uh, I think that's instructive. Things get worn when we look. When I look at my instruments, uh, there are places where just the natural use of the instrument wears out the wood in places, and to me that makes it much more beautiful to see something that is used and worn. Uh, there's something true about that. And that may be true of us too. That may be true of us as people. And I mean, I really do think, and I'm sure many of you experienced it, that there was something really deep about Sojin Roshi's last year of teaching. Uh, you know, it wasn't grim. Uh, in fact, it was light. And it was while he and all of us were swimming in the seas of impermanence. But as far as, so I'll tell you my conundrum. I'm really thinking about this. It's like, um, I'm trying to figure out whether to get a tooth implant which is going to cost like $5,000 or something. It's like, well, if I amortize this over the number of years I have left, is this, is this a wise expense? I mean, it's kind of, maybe this is sort of silly, but you know, it's, uh, think about that. Uh, actually, I'm probably going to get it but I've been putting it off for a couple of years. And of course, the more you put it off, the more you reach the other end of your life and the, and the you know, the amortization, it gets the, a steeper angle. <laughs> so there you go. Buy a rug, buy a carpet. You know, the people who come after you will enjoy it. And how do you uh, understand brokenness? Well, 
I understand brokenness as a quality that is already inherent in the very thing that I'm looking at. You know, that's the, the story that it's in the liner notes to that album uh, is about uh, a dialogue with Achan Cha, who um, is holding up a cup and uh, it's the same cup that he would use every day. And I think the question was like, well, uh, why do you like this cup? And uh, I think it was chipped and, and he said, well, because I can see the nature of this cup is that it is already broken. And so I enjoy it so much. Other questions? Mary. If people can say this with me, quoting from the great sage, uh, Leonard Cohen. Yeah. Um, ring the bell that still can ring. Ring the bell that still can ring. Per forget your perfect offering. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets through. That's how the light gets through, yeah. I was about to quote that there, but better for you to do it. Yeah, beautiful song. Anthem, I think, right? Yeah. Uh, Judy. Um, thank you, Ozan. I was wondering uh, how this relates to Dogen's teaching of, uh, depending on how it's translated, non-thinking or beyond thinking, because um, there, there, there's a... Um, a viewpoint, or if you will, a practice that trusts what's coming through the body. So, for instance, first responders, they train in methodology and scenarios, and at the same time, there's a live moment, and one could say that you trust what comes through the body. Or we get up from Zazen, the bell rings, and someone looks seriously unsteady, and because you're present, you can catch them so they don't fall. Their leg fell asleep. So one could say that's just coming through the body. There, there's a moment of not thinking, just one could say a pure response in relationship, right? And, and at the same time, I heard you speaking to what I might hear as right view, right action, right thinking. And, and that relationality. And so uh, I could say it's a device to say in a moment of uh, activation, whatever it is, anger, anxiety, to ask myself a question. I could say that's a skillful means, that's a device. How, how do you understand that relationship of thinking and what is an immediate response with, of not thinking, thinking and not thinking. Yeah. It's a little hard to repeat this question. Did you all hear it? Yes? Good. Um, <laughs> Non-thinking, which is not not thinking. So, how we respond goes back to, for example, the koan of Avalokiteshvara with her thousand arms reaching back for a pillow in the middle of the night. And we relate to that because we know what reaching back for a pillow in the middle of the night is like because we do it every night and we don't think about it we're trained to do that we're trained to set ourselves at ease and we naturally know how to do that and we never think we never wake up and sort of just think, do I deserve this do I deserve my neck to be comfortable we just do it. 
So the non-thinking is dependent upon both our, our physical, well, our training as, as physical beings. So if I see somebody, I may instinctively get, you know, go to help somebody whose legs have fallen asleep when they're getting up. You know, I do that because my understanding is such that I instantly recognize that something is happening there. That's what a first responder does. They know what's happening because they train for this. A doctor trains for this. Uh, every kind of uh, endeavor, we, we train by sitting down again and again and again. Uh, and this is how we create knowledge, not active thinking, but what we, this is, a, this is a discussion that I had with Sojin. It's like instinct comes from someplace. It doesn't come from the sky. Intuition and instinct, uh, they, uh, they're not coming from outside. They're coming from inside according to what you've done in your life. That's that's non-thinking to me. So when you when you referenced a false sense of urgency and then the intervention for that, I didn't say it was a false sense of urgency. No, when when you said that when, well, what I remember is that in a moment of uh, whatever it was, anger or anxiety, right, that you applied thinking. Right. You asked yourself a how question or a what question. Yes. Um, and. What I remember you saying is that that somehow that activation connected to say a, or can connect to a false sense of urgency, but you're checking it out. Is this really urgent? Yeah, I don't think I said a false sense of urgency. You said a, urgency. Urgency. Yes, which is not. That's just a feeling. It's neither false nor true. Okay. Uh, the the basis for it or the action upon it may be appropriate or not appropriate. You know, so uh, another thing that we look at, we've learned from working with Roshi Joan Halifax and in the Upaya Chaplaincy Program, we talk about being upregulated. Uh, that, you know, everything is activated and can I regulate myself? Can I, can I set myself, create a space where I can be at greater ease, and then, then see really what, what I feel is going to be useful to do. There's nothing. I have made mistakes of urgency, but I don't feel they were. I don't think. You know, I regret doing them because what I regret is acting on the urgency. I don't regret having that urgency. That's just what comes up, if so that makes sense. So be applying the thinking in that moment. Sometimes you have to think. That's, that's the fourth foundation of mindfulness. The fourth foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of the dharmas, which means looking at Dharma systems, actually, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Paths, the Factors of Enlightenment, the, uh, the hindrances, and we use them, we actually actively put them in place to look at our experience through those lenses. And uh, that's active, that's thinking. But it comes naturally, I think is what... It, well, it comes naturally. It, it's not natural until you make it natural. You know, you train in something. You do it over and over and over again a lot. You have to think. Um, you have to bring forth that thinking. But I don't want to distinguish between, and this is Dogen was really great at this. He doesn't disparage thinking. You know, he's not distinguishing between thinking. And not and not thinking, uh, but he's also honoring. I think he's honoring this 
dimension of what I'm calling training to bring it forth. Okay, uh, two more. Uh, Barbara Joan? First, I want to thank you um, because unwittingly you spoke directly to what was what from that from which I am suffering. So thank you for that, for the timely. And I wrote down what you said. You said, because I like taking notes, you said, what will the bomb of time do to fierce in, uh, urgency? And I think that that was the word fierce, not false. But what I'm struggling with is um, in that fierce intimacy, the urgency is sometimes an intimacy and it, it's a projection and it's a... So I just had to move my mother from a room in which she was comfortable to a room in which I am sure she will be far less comfortable. And she was really angry and she's very far away. And yesterday when I spoke with her, she was angry and didn't understand. She has issues with dementia and memory. And I'm really struggling with this, like, which is her anger and her fear and her, like, the at the same time as we are all at once, how do we also allow the distinction so that we can function within time? I don't, I don't know if that's clear, a clear question. I was trying to clarify it before I asked, but... That's, that's yeah. as far as I got. <laughs> well, you, you may have to grieve for the dynamics of the relationship that you're in with your mother. Grieve for her and grieve for you being in that position. And your grief uh, in both those dimensions can allow you the space for understanding and connection with your you can't fix it just like you can't fix can't go to remote dopo and and solve the illnesses there's grief there uh, if you allow that grief to rise then you can allow for allow yourself to proceed in as connected, relational a way as you can. It's it, um, but all I can say is, from what you've said, I'm feeling it. Okay, and it's good to share it, so that you're not carrying it alone, as sort of a personal conundrum. So, thank you for that. One more question, uh, Gempo. Yes, so in the Metta Sutta, it says, may my senses be controlled. And I, I was reading it tonight, I was like, controlled by whom? By you. You know, um, even though there is no one that we can definitively point our finger at as oneself or me, still there's the workings of one's mind. I mean, I don't want to go into to detail, but I am painfully aware of a circumstance where uh, I didn't where I had very strong feelings and before I had any modicum of control over them, I blasted somebody with them. And I have real regret about that. It was not helpful 
in any way to that person, to with the third person, to myself, to our relationship. And if I had just stepped back and looked at the transiency of that feeling, I would have come to something else. Practice would have led me to something else, which would have been uh, more conducive to our connecting. So thank you all, and have a good rest of the day. And I just want to encourage people, uh, please come to the Zendo. Sometimes we have this peculiar experience during practice period where people sign up, they make their practice commitment, and then all of a sudden the Zendo is has fewer people in it <laughs> than before practice period. So let's not have that happen. Please come and enjoy each other's presence and enjoy uh, Sue's uh, warm uh, stewardship of us all and uh, uh, let the wild rumpus start. Yeah.